0: This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting-edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining.
1: This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon.
0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business, 88.1 FM, Richard Solomon. How are you doing today? I, I really appreciate you being out there listening, whether you're in your car or uh, the weather's getting nice. It's good to hear everybody out there. Uh, as always, we are broadcasting uh, live from Studio Two, my favorite studio at WCWP, the Abrams Communication Center, eighty-eight point one FM on your dial. Lock it in there for the next hour because we have another action-packed hour. We were kind, We were. We were lucky enough to uh, uh, ask for the kindness of Dr. Arsabelle to return this week. So we schlepped him back to the studio, and he was generous with his time and his gas money to come on back and talk to us. So since we're continuing from last week, I have some notes from the prior week, and I understand that we need to talk a little bit about some Minsk baker. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so wait, so tell me about this, because this is, Uh, This is like supposedly a a great funny story. And we love funny stories on the radio,
1: especially in the morning. Well, it's an an interesting story. Actually, this is of my wife's ancestors. Uh, I believe I had mentioned in my previous uh, program uh, about uh, Eugene de Pallant, who was wounded and left for dead on the retreat from Moscow. He was a French colonel and rescued and saved by a Jewish family and then had studied Judaism and had converted to Judaism and married a Jewish girl, and then was disowned by his father. He, being the eldest son, was disowned in that he would have become Count de Pala, but he ended up uh, being in Russia and never coming back to France. It, which kind of reminds
0: me of the famous joke in Arthur, the original movie with Dudley Moore, where he says, I won't be seeing you anymore because, because I'm going to be poor. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so along those lines. <laughs> now... So he remained in uh, France, uh, in uh, Russia, and took over his uh, uh, father-in-law's uh, dairy when the father-in-law passed away. But his, so, what time frame
0: is this? What year are we talking? Well,
1: this is we started in 1812 when the, the Napoleonic War, and so a number of years later, when his father-in-law passed away, he was taking over the the dairy, which was the family's occupation in Russia. But uh, two generations later, a grandson. Uh, had become a baker and he decided to move to Minsk and he wanted to produce the finest breads in all of Minsk and the finest cakes in all of Minsk and he had a limited amount of money which to purchase grains and so forth and so he traveled to farms uh, all around the area and arranged to purchase the various grains that he would use in the making of his breads. And then these people were supposed to, at the end of the uh, grain season, to bring it to his bakery. Now, a number of these places were on the other side of the river. That is the farms from which he had arranged to purchase the grains. And so what happened was that the um, grains customarily would have to be traveling a goodly number of miles up the river to a place where there was a crossing. But it was uh, March In winter, and they thought they, farmer thought he could get his grains across the ice, um, that the river was frozen over. But it had been apparently a warmer winter than usual, and so when and this is before
0: global warming, yes, (laughs) before global warming,
1: and they got only uh, they were only about forty or fifty feet from the shore when the wagon with all the grain went through the ice. And, of course, the men in the uh, granary uh, came out hearing these people screaming and yelling there and rescued them. But now all the grain is below water level. So they managed to get the horses out and then they pulled the wagons out, but all the grain is soaked. Now this is a serious problem. How are you going to make bread? From all that soaked grain from the Volga River, something tells me they used like fryers or improvised. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, what they did is they uh, erected some platforms, and mind you, the whole fa- the families, all their assets were in that grain. They put them out on platforms to dry, but listen, they didn't know what's going to be. I mean, you know, could be poisoning people uh, with with grain soaked in the Volga River for whatever bugs who are growing in the Volga River. So what they decided to do is they'll do a trial lot. They'll make some some bread from this and the baker and his family will eat that grain. And if they don't get sick and die, then I guess they can safely say that they can make grain for <laughs> the rest don't you of the always have other bits? people do the the, the food <laughs> testing for you? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't they get out isn't that one of the first <laughs> the first things that were outsourced in the world. Well, I could tell you a medical story about someone who who tested things on himself, but that's another story. But anyway, um, they tasted this bread. It was the most scrumptious bread they'd ever tasted. And nobody keeled over. And no, none of, them, none of them got sick. So then he made these breads for his bakery. And there was a big sign out in front, After all, it's a new bakery. Who says anyone's going to want to come to your bakery? There are lots of other bakers in all of Minsk. And they had a big sign out, bread for free. You could get a slice, see. Well, people came down there for a free slice. What the hell? i will test the free slice. They didn't know this had been in the Volga River. They never tasted anything so good. Before you know it, they sapped up every every loaf of bread that the man made. So he decided on a new secret formula. All the grain that he bought would be soaked in the Volga River secretly. and then made it to bread. I don't know whether it fermented, and they had a little bit of schnapps in it, (laughs) but in any case, his bakery became a great success. So now he's got a bakery that's a great success, and he's living in a nice home with his wife and his children, and my wife's uh, mother's father is one of the children. Okay. And so a lot of the story we get from listening to the elders telling the story. Because you weren't there. No, I wasn't there. (laughs) Was you there, Charlie? No, I wasn't there. And there was no video. (laughs) Now, Now, this is an Orthodox Jewish family. And the father notices when he comes there on Saturday morning downstairs that the stove is hot. How could this be? On Shabbos? Someone's cooking? Well, He doesn't want to accuse his wife of violating Sabbath law. But he also notices another strange thing. They have wood behind the house. You know, they need wood for the stove. There seems to be some diminution in the amount of wood in the back. Could someone be stealing their wood? Hate to think of it, but listen, everything is possible. In any case... The discovery was made by the father, and the mother confessed to it that what she was doing is she was cooking food on Friday night, and apparently there was a neighbor, a widow with several young daughters living in a house right nearby, and she was then going over there and telling them that she had expected a whole host of relatives to the house for the Sabbath. And now they weren't coming, and it would be a disgrace. They would throw this good food away. Would she do the mitzvah for her of taking this food for her family? So the lady agreed. Okay, And that's why she was cooking on the Sabbath. And as disappearing, it was apparently the woman needed some food, wood. She was a widow, and she didn't have the ability to get wood, and she didn't have the money to purchase it. So she was the one taking the wood. In any case, eventually, they finally decided on a better solution. There was a widower who was a butcher who had good means and sturdy shoulders, and his children were all married off, and they arranged a match between the widow and the, uh, the butcher. Right, because the internet dating sites didn't exist at that time. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have <laughs> Match. dot com or JDate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how um, this uh, this baker uh, and his wife solved the problem of the widow with the children. But there were many things, other things that took place in that story. Uh, how the father used to invite. There were Jewish boys in the Russian army camp near them. And on the Sabbath, of course the Russians' uh, army is not interested in the Jewish Sabbath, so that he would invite, and some of them would come to the synagogue and he would invite them all back for, uh, after he was a prosperous man, invite them all back. And one of them had a wonderful voice, they used to enjoy listening to his voice, and in fact people, as they walked down the street, would stop in front of their window to hear the voice of this wonderful, this wonderful voice of this young man singing the Sabbath songs. That boy, unfortunately, eventually was killed in one of those minor wars between Russia and Turkey. And uh, this is one of the many things that occurred there. But there are many, many other interesting stories. I'd like to tell you one that takes place in Flower of God. Okay. And that's the story. That's the book available on uh, Amazon.com. Amazon.com. And it's the story of David Asbel. Now, you wonder why he's got a different-sounding name from me. You see, our family name was Azov Ale. Azov is hyssop, Ale is God. We were the Spice Family from the Temple of Solomon, delivering the hyssop to cleanse you before you entered the Temple of Solomon. Now, in the 16th century, our ancestor, Dr. David Azov was serving Suleiman the Magnificent as a physician. And after the death of Suleiman, he decided to remain in Europe. And so he settled in Budapest. One would ask, why would he settle in Budapest when he came from Istanbul? My That's a good question. Is as follows: the Sultan. Now, mind you, he wasn't a spring chicken when he passed away. He was a man full of years, but he died after a banquet. Maybe they'll blame the Jewish doctor for failing to protect the the Sultan against dying. So he decided he'll stay in Europe. And he settled in Budapest, and the family were there uh, for a couple uh, for one century, a couple of generations. And then, when Budapest was captured by a Christian army, they proceeded to annihilate all the Jews. Why? They didn't need any excuse to kill Jews, unfortunately, as has been all too often repeated in history. In any case, they fled to the Kingdom of Poland, and what happened was that in 1772, 1775, and 1792, the Polish Kingdom, which was a gigantic kingdom, was divided up among its three neighbors, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. So my family, living on one side of the Sand River, ended up in Galicia, which was then under Austrian rule. So Jews customarily did not have a family name. It was your first name, son, or daughter of your father's first name, unless you were a direct male, 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 descendant of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, in which in your case you were HaKohen. If you were the tribe of Moses, which were responsible for the care of religious institutions, you were halevi. otherwise it was your first name and your father's first name. However, we had a name, Isabel. And so when my ancestor, Moshe ben Avrum Ezebel, was in line to get his name, he told him he has a name, Moshe ben Avrum Isabel, And the Austrian captain said, Aus Ebel is a better name for a Jew. <laughs> Aus Ebel meant out of evil. Not exactly a <laughs> complimentary name that you'd pick for yourself, unless the other choice was Schmuckler or Petzl or some <laughs> obvious vulgarity. Now, on the other side of the river, the family were under Russian rule, and so they were named in the Russian Cyrillic Asbel. A-Z-B-E-L is the spelling. In any case, now we're going stretching for uh, forth many centuries, and we're going into the 20th century. And early in the 20th century, a young man by the name of David Asbel was born in what would today be called the Ukraine. And David was a brilliant individual Hold on a second. Uh, This is Taking Care of Business, TCBRadio.com, 88.1
0: FM, WCWP, WCWP
1: WCWP.org. Okay. David had decided to keep out of politics because an uncle of his was a uh, leading member of the Socialist Party. And uh, when Stalin took over, he eliminated all the fellow travelers, including his uncle. In any case, so David... Decided to go into physics and became a very accomplished physicist at an early age. Now, what happened one day is he happened to be at dinner at the home of one of the Jewish doctors who was arrested in the doctor plots against Stalin. See, Dal- Stalin was a paranoid schizophrenic uh, who uh, was convinced that Jewish doctors were wanting to kill him. And so, I remember 30 or so doctors, some of the most brilliant minds in Russia who happened to be Jews, were arrested. David happened to be having dinner with one of those doctors. Now, he wasn't a doctor of medicine. He was a doctor of physics. So all the doctors confessed to being involved in the plot. You say, why would they confess to something that they were not involved in?
0: I have a feeling it's one of those confess or die things.
1: (laughs) Well, no, no, no. They were killed. No, but it's either confess
0: or die or just die.
1: (laughs) Well, the answer was they were told. Each one was told. You either confess and you will be executed, or you don't confess and will execute you and your father and your mother and your sisters and your brothers and your wife and your children. So if you wanted your family to survive, you confessed and you were shot. Now David happened not to be a doctor of medicine, so he was only sentenced to 20 years in the gulag in a slave labor camp. Well, he'd been there for some while, and he realized there's no way he'd survive 20 years in this place. They were giving him a crust of bread, uh, a pinch of salt, and some foul-smelling water as a total daily ration, Expecting to work 16 hours a day. He decided to go on a hunger strike and die. Oh no, you can't do that. The communist re- d- d- directors decide when you will die and how you will die. You have no free will in this matter. And so he had been on this hunger strike for nine days. So they put a tube down the stomach, force-fed him with expensive stuff, to keep him alive, fooled them. <laughs> but now, now he had to be punished for this kind of shenanigans. You don't just disobey your your uh, communist overlords and get away with it. He had been on the hunger strike for nine year nine days. They sentenced him additional to spend nine years in a cell below ground in the absence of light. These people had the no only communication with the outside world was through a little hole, which he would push his excrement through, and they would push through that same hole where the excrement had gone a little bit of nutrition. You say, how did this man survive at all? Let alone not end up a dribbling idiot. And David, as I mentioned, was a brilliant individual. He was a chess player, amongst he other things. Yeah. chess on an imaginary chessboard in his brain, playing both sides, analyzing what move I would take on this side, then analyzing what move I would take on this side. That was one of the things he did. He also recognized that there were many things in science that had not yet been discovered or concluded as to what the solution was. In his mind, he was calculating out the solutions to scientific puzzles that had not yet been solved. In the third place, he had once read an English-Russian dictionary. Now, bear in mind, David had a photographic memory. In his memory, he was teaching himself from those words to make sentences, paragraphs, and whole compositions. So he taught himself the English language in his brain from what he had remembered from reading a Russian-English dictionary years before. And he came out of that hole in the ground after nine years and then was still in the gulag, slave labor camp. Well, a lot of things had taken place in the world during that period. There had been a World War II. The Americans had developed an atomic bomb. So the Russians told him that they would like him to work in their atomic plant. And if he did that, they would terminate his sentence in the gulag. So they escorted David down there, and David took a look around and said no. So you say, why the hell did he say no? I mean, living in, in the gulag is hell. At least here, he'd be living in, a, in some quarters and doing some scientific work. He says, I'll tell you why. He says, these idiots, they don't know the first thing about what they're doing. They're working with intensely radioactive materials without any shielding, without any gloves. They'll all be done in a couple of weeks. And I'm not going to die working for a government that has persecuted me. And so he's back to the gulag. Well, finally, when Stalin had died and Khrushchev took over, Khrushchev has announced to the Central Committee of the Communist Party that Stalin, in his paranoia, had done a lot of things that weren't so good. So finally, he was allowed out of the gulag, but he still had to be punished for that shenanigan of nine days on the hunger strike against the... But I thought he paid for the nine years. No, no. That that was not finished. (laughs) He's still, still got to suffer. Well, he didn't suffer that much because um, it gave him the opportunity to meet a young Jewish girl who was in an opera company playing in Siberia. And so they were married. And then they had a son. Finally, he's allowed to come back to Moscow. Now, he's no longer a spring chicken. He's a man in his 50s. Comes back to Moscow. He's been away for the scientific world for 30 years. So he went back and got two more doctorates, one doctorate each year and now becomes one of the leading nuclear physicists in the entire Soviet Union. So then when President Nixon came to Moscow, David marches in front of the Kremlin, where Nixon is walking in carrying a placket saying he wants to go to America. When I met him years later, I says, David, what are you crazy? What the hell do you think they were going to do, let you go to America? You're a a, a nuclear physicist in the Soviet Union. Besides, you had a nice apartment, as you described to me, and they gave you a summer house. What the hell else did you want? He says, I'll tell you. My son was growing up. He wanted to become a doctor. And in deference to me, because I was doing this work, they would let him go to a medical school, a fifth-rate medical school somewhere in northern Siberia, to be confined to a little village there in, in, in the Arctic, never to achieve up to his ability. So I wanted to go to America so that he could achieve up to his ability. I said, sure. So how are they going to let you out? He says, aha. Remember I told you I was a chess player. And I figured out my moves, their moves. So I knew they were going to throw me out of my job. I knew they were going to beat the hell out of me. There was my clue. I was ready now in my 70s. So when they're beating me up, oh, I become a vegetable. And I lied on the ground there with my tongue hanging out. And for the next several weeks, I'm lying in bed there and uh, 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 dribbling, a dribbling idiot. Now, I was well known around the world. And there was a committee of, a, of scientists from all over the world denouncing the Soviet Union for its persecution of this man who had preached the uses of atomic energy for peaceful purposes. So they were sort of embarrassed and they decided, look, he's a vegetable already, so the hell would it. We'll, we'll let him go to America and we'll let his wife and his son go along to take care of him and that's it. We'll get rid of this uh, useless piece of locks." Comes to the United States, he recovered completely. Snaps right <laughs> not out of only it. <laughs> that, not only that, he became our senior advisor on breeder reactors, the, new, the next level of atomic energy. So that's the story of my... Uh, now, what happened was... He came to our house for dinner. I could see how this man could survive. He was like a small bull, short but with like an 18 or 19 inch neck. And he spoke so casually, like someone who'd never suffered any problem at all, just a happy go lucky fellow. He had the spiritual and physical ability. To survive in that kind of atmosphere, An amazing human being. He's now passed away. He probably lived to around a hundred or so, and then. Not bad. bet the his called him, considering, considering what he went through. Yeah,
0: you know, usually that stuff you figure would weaken you,
1: and you know, you're not
0: for, for nine years. You didn't have any medical exams
1: or no, <laughs> you know, anything. Actually, actually, in in some ways, it's beneficial. Remember, I mentioned in my previous show. My relatives who went to Australia, and they died at 102 in 98. Now, in in their early years, they were going through the, the Gobi Desert. They were living on literally starvation foods, like primitive man. And perhaps if you don't get your cholesterol up enough, you don't get that rust in the arteries, and you can last 200 years. So he, not getting food, for 20 years in the gulag. (laughs) Some (laughs) uh, trade-off. Most of us wouldn't think that. I'd rather rather take a statin. (laughs) See, see, I don't know. I I read the Haggadah where it talks about the festive meal. It doesn't say, you know, the paleo diet. (laughs) (laughs) And he had a cousin, his cousin, living also with the name Asbel Mark, who was involved in the Sharansky case. Oh, talk about that. But first of all, these these are all in your book, Flower of God. Oh, yes, Yes, they're all in the book. Okay. How big is this book? Uh, 420-some pages. How long did it take you to write that one book? Well, I wrote all of them together, but 32 years.
0: Okay, so when you wrote them all together, how did you you define what would
1: separate the books by theme? Well, that was easy. I had uh, chosen six ancestral families, now, not all the families can I trace 3,000 years. Only two out of the six do I trace 3,000 years. One of my sides, My wife is a 105th generation, direct descendant of King David. So I marry Yichus. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, um, book two is the Sephardic. So how, how does she know that she can trace that back?
0: Because... Other her, than like, hey, I'm related to Dave. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. I'll tell you. Her, uh, Remember I mentioned that uh, family had come to the United States, Palant, the right. Palant. Um, now, they had married. Remember, uh, they, they, there's, there's, a, I don't want to say an intermarriage, because they're both Jewish families. Uh, they had married the... Uh, the Count. The, 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 yeah, the Count. Well, they, they had also married the, the Rabbi Leviatiot Yechilzon. I think I mentioned him previously. Who, uh, his family were descendants of King David. Now, what happens when he came to the United States he carried with him a trunk full of books. And my wife is descendant of the eldest child, but the youngest child was a, a lawyer. They're usually smarter than the rest of us. And As a lawyer, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> so what happened was uh, her ancestor got the candlesticks, the silver candlesticks. He kept the trunk with the books. Now what happened in that trunk is there was two scrolls. One is scroll. Priceless scroll now, detailing the descent of Hillel from King David. A second scroll detailing the descent of Rashi from Hillel. Wow. And then after Hillel, now Hillel didn't have any sons. I mean, Rashi didn't have any sons. He had daughters. And so she's descended, my wife is descended of Miriam, one of the daughters. And the family then became famous rabbis in Central, Western, and Eastern Europe. So you have this whole line of rabbis over a period of many centuries. And so Levi Yitzchak Yechilzon had this trunk full of documents, which had all these writings, the original handwritten manuscripts of works written by uh, Yechil ben Shlomo Halperin, uh, and so forth and so on. And so these were all donated to the Institute for Jewish Genealogy at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Annenberg being a very wealthy uh, Jew uh, who uh, gave up uh, the triangle publications for a few billion dollars and decided to devote the rest of his life and he became became ambassador to the court of St. James for uh, President uh, Reagan. Taking care of business is the show. 88.1 FM is the FM signal
0: and we are with uh, one of the most fascinating people I've met to date on this show, Dr. Herbert Ausubel, who traces his roots to the spice
1: priests. Are they priests or merchants? No, 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 no. The spice family. There's, uh, well, they were merchants to start with. They were spice merchants, and then eventually went into medicine. Right, but, but in the, the ancient temp- temple of Solomon in... in... They were spice people, spice merchants.
0: They were merchants. Right. Okay. Were they spice priests? No, no. Oh, a right, priest, just- by definition, would be a coin. Oh, okay, so, the, so but these were the guys who dealt with the cohanes and gave them right. money, the spices, of which were the sort of the antibacterial soap of its day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just it's all about marketing, repackaging, and naming. Yeah. So, <clears throat> oh, oh, pardon me. Okay, so when before the break we were talking about the House of David and these incredibly rare scrolls that documented the lineage of your wife's family back to sort of Hillel and. Uh, Rashi, Rashi. Some, of, some
1: of the major names of David Jewish and thought. And, of course, uh, David's ancestors. Whither thou goest shall I go, and thy people shall be my people. That was uh, David's, uh, I'm trying to remember whether it's his grandmother or great-grandmother. Uh, you Remember these, the story of, uh, what is the name of the story? Um, she married Obeid, um, who was Jewish, and she was... Uh, a non-Jew at birth, and she says to her mother-in-law, after her husband dies, whither thou goest shall I go, and thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. And then she married a cousin. The second marriage was a cousin, and David is descended of that marriage, King David.
0: And King David was the son of Solomon? Or the, or King David the, is the father of Solomon. So- King David is the father of Solomon. Okay. Uh, I knew there was a, there was a relationship.
1: No, no, actually, uh, Solomon was the second child by Bathsheba, You know, they had multiple marriages in those days. It was called polygamy. In fact, I once had dinner with a direct descendant of King David of a different persuasion. Okay. This is in 1956. I was on, at that time, a commanding officer of a medical company with the 3rd Marine Division, and we were the occupying power in Japan. And I had taken a trip to, uh, to see Kyoto, Nara, and Osaka which were older than uh, Tokyo, Kyoto having been the capital before Tokyo. And I was staying at a hotel in Nara, in fact, the Hotel Nara. And I woke up one morning, and I take a look out my window, and there's a limousine pulling up to the front. And it had some interesting flags on it. And out of the back seat stepped a gentleman who I recognized from pictures that I had seen in the newspaper. It was Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. Yes. The Latin of Ethiopia. And, well, I didn't go running up to the emperor. <laughs> I'm not exactly an important person uh, being an, um, a medical officer with the 3rd Marine Division. But uh, that day I wanted to see a performance of Takaraska. See, there are three types of uh, Japanese plays. There is the no plays, which is sort of pantomime. There's the in which men play men and men play women. And there's the takaraska, which women play women and women play men. Apparently, they didn't get together on the stage, <laughs> men and women, only, only <laughs> in, in disguise. In any case, I wanted to see a, a performance of takaraska in the town of takaraska. There are three takaraska companies. They rotate. One is always in the town of takaraska. One is always in Tokyo. And one is on the road in the rest of Japan. And they rotate, so then they start a new new play uh, grouping uh, from Takarazuka. So I wanted to see Takarazuka in its original home. So I went there, and now we were Americans. We were rich by comparison with the Japanese at that time. So I wanted to find the seats in the house, which consisted of two seats in the second row in the mezzanine. And so I'm there, and I noticed that nobody's sitting in the front row. I didn't think they had personally something against me as an American. Incidentally, there was a sign up there saying, no pho- photography allowed in Japanese and then underwritten in English. So just before performance time, who should arrive to take off that whole first row? The emperor. The emperor and his royal entourage and a number of Japanese uh, diplomats dressed in those fancy coats there, you know, the, the tails on the tuxedos. And so they all sit down. I happen to be seated behind a heavyset gentleman who was seated next next to the emperor. Now, apparently, he doesn't pay any attention to those signs about no photography. He was a rather heavyset gentleman, and he's got this Canon camera with, like, a Canon in front of him, about 12 inches of, <laughs> at least it looked that way, of lens in front of him. And he's taking flash pictures, snapping it all over the place. Well, who's going to tell the emperor and his royal entourage that they can't take pictures? I had a little Nikon S2 with a 1.4 lens, a very fine camera, but a little camera. And I'm in the row behind him, so I figured, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll take one. I'm not. Gonna, I don't have a flash. I'll take one picture, you know, just to remember the the Kabuki, the Takarazuka performance, and who will notice my taking a picture when this guy is taking fifty pictures or hundred pictures? So I take a picture, and he heard a click when he wasn't pressing his trigger. So he looked around and saw me. So I. It, put my camera under my jacket, and, you know. Then in the intermission, he came over to me and started speaking in French. So I explained to him, while I have learned some French, I'm much better at English since I'm an American. While I wasn't in my military uniform, I am an American. So um, we chatted for a while, and he showed me his camera, and I showed him my camera. And then the rang for the curtain to go up, and we are supposed to go back in the theater, into the, our sta- seats. And he said, would you like to join us for dinner? Well, never did man to turn down a free meal, <laughs> I was readily agreeable. See, there had been a sign up at the hotel, the Hotel Nara. All the guests at the hotel will find some other place to eat because the dining room is being taken up for a royal dinner. So now I'm going into the royal dinner. And at the head of the table, it's a long table with many people, uh, all of whom looked as e- either they were African or uh, Japanese, and I am the uh, my, the sore, pale-looking thumb Dr. Livingston I presume <laughs> <laughs> and so the emperor seated at the head of the table apparently this gentleman that I had gotten acquainted with is his nephew and he's his heir apparent and he's seated next to the emperor and the emperor is a little slim fellow but this guy is you know, is a big fellow and, and I'm seated next to his nephew who turned out to be the one that I had met and so apparently at one point in time the emperor asked the uh, nephew who's this so, um, the assistant photographer. I explained, <laughs> I explained to him that um, I'm an American, uh, I'm an officer with the 3rd Marine Division, I command the medical company, and so forth. And oh, so that's fine. He spoke English as well as French and as well as the uh, Ethiopian language. And so I asked him, You don't mind, Your Highness, if I ask you a question? I noticed that those flags on the front of your limousine when you came to the hotel. They have a uh, star in a blue field on all the four corners, what we call the Star of David, and in the center is the head of a lion. He says, that's because I'm a descendant of King David. King David was the Lion of Judah, and the four stars are the stars of David. Uh, Well, how did that work out? He says, well, the Queen of Sheba was the Queen of Abyssinia. And she not only got good advice from Solomon, she got a baby and a marriage. Ah, And so, but she had a a kingdom to rule, a queendom, or whatever you want to call it, an emperor, empire to rule, so she had to go back to her home country. But when he was 12 years old, she sent Medellek to get acquainted with his father, to spend a year there. And he brought back with him scholars of this new religion, Judaism, which then became the religion of the royal court and the intelligentsia of Abyssinia, and remained that way for 1,300 years. Now, what happened 1,300 years later, we're now in 300 A.D. in the Christian calendar. Uh, Egypt is now, this is before Islam, Egypt is now Coptic. And so it was one of these many wars between Egypt and Ethiopia, the two dominant countries in uh, East Africa. And the Egyptians won, and they demanded that the emperor either becomes Coptic or becomes the ex-emperor. He chose to become Coptic, which is actually the religion of of Ethiopia now, or the vast majority of the people of Ethiopia. Now, those who were loyal to Judaism 1,300 years later fled to the north, because they now were no longer uh, uh, the popular party. And they were called the Falashas. Falash in the Ethiopian language means wanderers. They became shepherds, and they went from waterhole to waterhole in this arid country. To feed their flocks, so they were called the Falashas. Now they had the Torah, the five books of Moses, and they followed the Kashrut. But there were a couple of Jewish holidays they didn't follow because they never heard of them. This took place after their separation. For example, they never heard of Hanukkah, and they never heard of Purim, at least in, in this area. And they were discovered, which I described in Book 4, the rabbis, they were discovered by an ancestral member of my wife's family of those rabbis, who when going through, traveling through Africa, had found these people who were obviously Jews, following Jewish, every bit of Jewish tradition, the way they ate, in terms of davening, in terms of the, the the very Torah, which is the same Torah for all Jews. And so he knew about the Falashas, and he knew about himself and how he was descendant from King David. So that's my brief synopsis of meeting uh, Haile Selassie. Well, what's interesting
0: is, of course, that the Falashas ended up in either Operation Magic Carpet. Was it Operation Magic? Which is the one that brought the Ethiopian Op- Moses? Operation Moses. Was it?
1: Uh, Operation okay. Moses. There was, one, Moses. Uh, there was yeah. one. There was yeah. one there was yeah. endeavor by the Israelis. Yes, they, uh, they brought out thousands and thousands of them. They're now living in Israel. That's right. And the last ones they couldn't get out of there because some stupid reporter, you know. You have to think when you write something, what are the consequences of what you're writing? And this reporter is describing how these Jews were being brought out of the civil war in, in uh, Ethiopia into the Sudan and then flown out by planes landing on grassland. Now, in case you didn't know it, the Sudanese government is virulently Muslim. And when they heard, reading this article by this reporter, that there were Jews black, white, pink, or purple, they didn't care. They're Jews. Being, getting from through their country to Israel, they immediately sent out 20,000 troops to end it. So the last of the Falashas, the way we got through is by bribing the communist government for $1,000 a head, we could get them down to Addis Ababa and fly them directly to Israel. So that's the way we got the last of the uh, Falasha community, which is probably now 30,000, 40,000 in Israel.
0: Yeah, so, so are there any are there any Jewish people still left in Ethiopia, or they're all uh, in Israel? Probably
1: not. I mean, it may be. I mean, like there's, there's some maybe some Jews still left in Iraq. I mean, anyone's crazy enough to stay in Iraq, you just don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me. Uh, uh, this is Richard Solomon
0: taking care of business. tcbradio.com, dot com eighty eight point one FM. Tell me a little bit about the Jews of Turkey, since you have some experience with oh, the Jews yes. of Turkey. It says. Um, my ancestry, of course, has to do with the uh, gr- Greece, and of course the Ottoman Turks were pretty much in charge of that area at the time, most assuredly. so So I'm curious because um, there's definitely a connection between the Greek Jews, the Turkish Jews, and I know that there is a, uh, a good story in you about the Turkish Jews.
1: Oh yes, well, uh, when my wife and I married, uh, we didn't have between us a Potaean. But uh, we were going to save and take a trip, a grand tour of the continent. Of course, our grand tour is a somewhat modest grand tour. But then we had uh, we were blessed with a son. And then one day, I'm still early in practice, a, and I was not well-to-do, to put it modestly. Uh, one day, a gentleman came to my office who happened to be a Turkish. And he worked at a filling station pumping gas. And so he told me that his daughter had married an American... And that his daughter and the new son-in-law were going to Turkey for a trip to visit the grandparents. And that the, the flight over was going to cost them $250. And for those on that flight, they could stay in a hotel in Istanbul for three weeks for that whole $250 apiece.
0: So Such said, a deal. <laughs> I is it's a
1: very good deal. What airline is offering this? She says, no, no, no airline. You see, they're going through the Turkish Club of America, um, which has a charter flight. But you have to be a Turk, a member of the Turkish Club of America. I says, Well, my ancestors live in Turkey uh, six centuries ago. I guess I can classify myself as a Turk. I'll join the Turkish Club of America. What do they charge? It's five dollars. Five dollars? Yeah, five dollars. I can afford the splurge. I'll join the Turkish Club of America and get myself on the charter. So I came home and told my wife. She says, What are you talking about? We got a little child. You're gonna take a little child to Turkey? I mean, they might get some terrible disease over there. But this is not an easy thing. I said, no, 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 look, what we could do is we'll ask your mother to stay with Ian and we'll hire some lady to do the cooking and the cleaning and your mother will be supervising and it'll give her a chance to bond with the child. Well, finally I persuaded my wife, I'm a bit of a talker as you probably notice here, and I persuaded her that we'll take that trip and her mother will supervise our son Ian. So we're ready to take the trip and we come down to the airport. My wife says, we're not going on that plane. I says, why not? She says, look at those people. These Turks are sturdy people. Each one of them has got four trunks. It takes four Turks to pick up one trunk. They've got the whole United States they're carrying back to (laughs) Turkey with them. This plane will never take off the ground. I says, don't be ridiculous. Airlines have got to, I never heard of some plane crashing because it was overloaded. They got to check that the plane is capable of carrying that kind of stuff. Finally, I persuaded her, we're going to go on the flight. So we get on the plane, and it's packed, not a, not a vacant seat. Not only is it not a vacant seat, the lady sitting next to me has got a man on her lap who's bigger than me. Stephanie says to me, you're only allowed to have a child under the age of three on your lap. Big for his age. That's, <laughs> that's, that's no three-year-old. He needs a shave. Go to the suitors and tell her. So I go to the stewardess. She says, look, it's a poor Turkish lady. All she's got is $250. She wants to visit her family. If she doesn't go on this plane, she'll lose her $250, and she'll never get back to see her family. Well, I couldn't. I didn't have the heart to say, you got to throw her off the plane. So she's sitting next to me, and we take off, and it's dark. And this man on her lap, who's supposed to be her son, is snoring away. And as the plane makes a turb, this man rolls over and lands on my knee, all 180 pounds or whatever he was, on my knee, and I was in agony, but I didn't want to scream and yell. I wake up the whole plane, and not only that, he's got his nose nestled up against my ear. For the next six hours, he's snoring in my ear. By the time we reached Istanbul, no CPAP machine, huh? I couldn't <laughs> hear, and I hardly could walk. The, the leg was numb. But in any case, we get off the plane. Now we got that free hotel we're going to. So we get a, a, a taxi to the hotel, and we arrive at the hotel, and we walk into that room, and I realize, forget it, we're not staying in this room.
0: This is Istanbul.
1: Istanbul, okay. yes. The creatures walking, crawling around in that room are bigger than my fingers. <laughs> I'm
0: not sleeping, and, and may have been hungry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what the heck they are, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sleeping in this room. So we went someplace not far from there. The hotel, six equivalent of, of much cheaper than motel six prices. And we stayed there, and we had a few days in Istanbul, and we were fascinated, but I felt as long as we don't have a free hotel, we might as well see the rest of the country. And we'll travel around like, um, like Turks, you know, in the local buses and so forth, no, not, no expensive uh, conveyances. And it was absolutely fascinating. You, you got on this bus, and it's packed to the rafters, and this is in the middle of summer. It's a Turkish summer. It feels like 120 in the bus. There's no air conditioning. So, Stephanie is swimming in sweat, so I figured I'll open the window to get a little fresh air. Some Turkish woman rushes over to us and points to a baby in Woolens. It'll catch a cold from the wind. So I have to close the window and we're sweating away. And so this is the type of traveling we're doing there. Anyway, we arrive at some town and, um, want something to eat so we got we got to eat a bowl of uh, cucumbers and yogurt and um, that cost us about the equivalent of three cents for the two of us and now people are getting back on the bus to go to the next town so we see some woman saying goodbye to her family a tearful farewell they're hugging each other and crying and so forth and she's got two live chickens plus her baggage that they're putting tying onto the top of the bus I figured she's probably going to a foreign country because they're saying their farewells forever. She's going to a town two downs, two miles down the road <laughs> with her chickens <laughs> and her baggage. They're very
0: close. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what about the Jewish people of Turkey and the the
1: Jewish ancestry? Oh well, we came down to during the course of the travel, and you'll learn more when you read the book. When you read, that's just one chapter. And just a nibble of one chapter. Right, but, but I'm dying of curiosity. Yeah, they, we come to Izmir. Okay. Now where my family had lived for many, many centuries. And so, um, but I couldn't find any Azubels, Azubels, or whatever in the uh, in any book. So one day we're walking past and there's a carpet store. And so there's one beautiful silk carpet for a wall hanging in the window. So we went into the shop. To inquire, just, you know, just, just inquiring, you know. So I didn't expect to buy anything because I'm sure it's way beyond my means. I wasn't well-to-do. Anyway, uh, so the owner of the uh, establishment doesn't speak English, but he has a shop girl, shop woman, whatever you want to call her, who uh, speaks English, and so she's doing the translating. And I ask, how much is that silk carpet? Now, this was a million uh, knots per cubic... Meter. This Good is stuff. The, this is the, this is the top quality stuff, and it's in the form of a tree of life. Beautiful piece of wall hanging, I thought. So, how much does he want for it? Two hundred dollars. I thought boy, I'd never get anything like that. This is kind of magnificent quality in the states. So, so I says I will get it. The young lady who's doing the translating says, after she tells me everything that the man had said, says offer him sixty dollars in English, under her breath. So, I follow her directions, so I offer $60. This man waves his hands in the air, what well, are you, crazy? Work of this sort, you talk for $60, it's an outrage, it's a disgrace, it's an insult. And she translates everything that he has said, and then she says, keep with the
0: $60. <laughs> so
1: I yell out, $60! And he screams and rants and raves, Is 120 now we're down to 120. I figured, okay, we'll get it. She says, stick with the $60. P.S. After all this ranting and raving, finally he's disgusted, walks away, casts his hands in the air in disgust. I figured we lost the rug. She says, okay, and she wraps it up. And they, she gives me, and I give her the $60. I also took out another 20, figured that, you know, she'd done me a very good service. reason originally was perfectly prepared to pay 200 Handed a $20 bill, she hands it back to me, says, your family would be insulted. If I charge you anything for my helping you out, as my family, you know my family, so of course, you're an Azerbaijan. Apparently, something in my face looks like the Turkish Azavails who from whom I've been separated for hundreds of years. Some family recognition, and not only that, a second time we were in another place, wanted to arrange a trip to Sardis, the capital of the Lydian Empire, where my ancestors lived, and they lady, the lady likewise recognized me as an Azabel. Something in my features. Now, but I still hadn't met the Azabel, So I asked them, where where are they? He says, well, they all went on the original ship in 1947 to, to Israel. They left. So I met the... My Turkish branch of the family actually in Israel. But, how, but if everybody left Turkey to go to Israel, how did these people, were these people just the ones who just stayed back? No, what happened was in Izmir at that time there were 20,000 Jews. 18,000 went to Israel. 2,000, most of them the more prosperous ones, you know, it's a sh- because they let you out with a shirt on your back. <laughs> That's it. Right. You're not going to carry uh, your valuables with you. So the more affluent people tended to stay in Izmir. And so they still had Jews in Izmir. Of course, I don't know that these two, the two women I met were were very well-to-do, but apparently... Well-to-do enough. Well-to-do enough to have stayed there in in Izmir. But then I met them in Israel. That was interesting. When I met the group in Israel, when I told them I was from America, they thought it was their long-lost father. Apparently, the father had gone as a seaman on a ship going to the Americas and was supposed to eventually bring over his family. But they never heard anything from from him again. So who knows what happened to him. So when I said I was from America, they were int- hoping that this would be the father that they hadn't seen since they were children. So it's interesting because it's almost a full circle
0: because here you are as the spice merchants and all the way back in time, back to Israel. Right. So that'd be an interesting, when we come back, I want to ask what the israeli turkish part of the family did upon their reunification with the terra firma of which they were you know sprung forth mm-hmm. this is richard solomon i'm here with uh, dr Asbel, who is the author of flower of god another power hour of great radio uh because we have Always very very great guests on this show, mm-hmm. and this particular guest is a brilliant mind, and, uh, and 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 not only that, but when you have someone who's both a brilliant person and incredibly enthusiastic, that's just a powerhouse combination. So your publishers are very lucky to have you. Mm-hmm. So if they're listening in, you guys got it. You've got a great author there. Okay, so since we only have a few minutes here. I wanted to just kind of wrap this segment up with the question of, all right, so. The ancestors start in Israel, in Jerusalem, a couple thousand years ago.
1: Three <laughs> thousand. Know,
0: yeah, they they circumnavigate the globe. There's some that end up in Turkey, and then from Turkey they go back to Israel. Yeah. So, so the question is, what? You know, after three thousand years, it's hard to like restart the car, pick up the keys, and just go back to where you started from. So, how did they
1: complete the path? they ended up in the spice business that's hilarious yeah. now, they they would be like the pereg people wouldn't they <laughs> well they uh, actually in the final chapter or the final story in, in flower of in god flower of god right it is on one of my w- trips my wife and i and our children to israel and we are in the galilee right and i see the hyssop plant the plant which our family made its name to start with the hyssop of god And I picked up these flowering petals of the hyssop plant and showered myself with its cleansing aroma. And I was reminded of the psalms. Flower me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And I ended the book with the children have come home.
0: Wow, that's a fascinating, cool story. But that's not the end of the story. That's the end of that book because the story continues. So what's... In the one minute we have left, what's the name of book two and three?
1: Book two is the Sephardic heritage. My and I have an ancestral brand, a branch, my ancestral root, in uh, which starts with the uh, in uh, medieval Spain and goes into the diaspora, so to speak. With the Inquisition, they go into. Actually, they didn't go to Turkey. They went to Italy, and then they had to flee uh, Naples and go. In fact, they were on the ship with Isaac Abravanel. Uh, when they left uh, Spain, and they went up into um, to be uh, to uh, Venice, Venice was taken over by Austria. So now we're under Austrian rule. And finally, Scheindel da Silva marries Moses aus Ebel, and they were my great grandparents. Wow! And book three is the immigrants. I tell the story of my mother's ancestry dating back to the bubonic plague. Right, 30 seconds. Book four is The Rabbis, which is the descendants of King David. Book five is The Ethics, the descendants of Eugene de Palant who converted to Judaism on basis of the study of the ethics of Judaism. And book six is The Music, My Wife's Great uh, Musical Ancestral Hammered Heritage. you got a cool family, I'll tell you. There's there's rich history. I'd love to
0: hear more about it. I uh, definitely want to read more about it. I anxiously await to see all these books Uh, go out there, and for all of those who have questions, uh, you can send me an email at TCB radio, WCWP at yahoo.com, and I'll forward it to the good doctor. Uh, We hope to have you grace our studios once again in the future. I'll be delighted. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about medicine and healing and all the other great things that you're doing. And I'd like to also say hello to Kathy, who made all of this possible and made the introduction. So, Kathy, if you're listening, thank you. That was the fastest hour of radio, except for the hour we did last week. So, until we see you again, thank you.